Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark Moore, and my guest this week is a man you'll remember from our discussions about Upstream Color and Under the Skin. Let's give a big welcome to filmmaker Jason R. Gray. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, rousing introduction, Dylan. Hey, right, Jason, anything cool you've been watching on Netflix? Yeah, I've been watching. Well, I've been watching. Uh, I've finally gotten into Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which has been sort of my comedy uh, go-to. Uh, I'm only about halfway through the first season, but uh, I mean, I love Andy Samberg. I, I, my sister had recommended it to me a while back, and then, uh, you know, Edward, you know, got on me about it. And so I was like, check it out. It's fantastic. It's so good. <laughs> I've also been watching um, The Hundred. <clears throat> that sci-fi show about these sort of Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's that's interesting. I mean, again, heavily flawed, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that it's... Uh, are, where are you in that? Are you past the first season? Yeah. Okay, because I've heard that the yeah, second season is when they kind of get outside of the CW bubble. And... Totally. The first season is basically like they've just landed on planet Earth, which is a huge deal, but they're more like intent on like hooking up. and <laughs> So it's like, really? But it, it quickly drops that. So. Well, the movie that we're here to talk about this week is from the year 2014. It's written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. We're going to be talking about It Follows. Before we get into that, I should let you know that today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. So the ways that Netflix describes it follows are as follows. When you hover over the title, it says a teenager finds out that sex can be deadly, and the only escape is to infect another unfortunate soul. The problem is... It follows as a genre film, so it's always going to get like tagged with these things, and it sort of it boxes itself into that corner a little bit too. Like I, I know a lot of people know about this film, but few have seen it, and oftentimes like the reactions are really polarizing. Like it's too slow, or all these things. So anyway, but we'll get to that. This um, that description is kind of silly, but I mean, Jeremy you described it as like you know the ultimate sort of you know PSA for <laughs> safe sex, right? So I would have liked that one actually <laughs> to be in there instead. Uh, the next one is when you click on the title, it says, After a sexual tryst, Jay learns that her date has passed on a lethal curse that can only be shed by sleeping with another unsuspecting partner. I love that it's a tryst. It's not just they've had sex. It's a tryst. <laughs> it's like a, it's a huge event, right? Um, yeah, again, it's focusing on like, unfortunately, like I said, it follows boxes itself into that corner a bit because for me, the film's not really about that. That's a catalyst for things, right? But yeah. of course, if we look at, you know, the under the skin, you know, uh, the write-ups for that and uh, an upstream color, right? I mean, they were all again, how do we distill it down so that somebody who's barely awake right now and trying <laughs> to decide what they're going to watch, yeah. that th- what's going to pull them in? The word sex, that one works. The word, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's where tryst is effective. Tryst, like, yeah. Oh, boy. This isn't just some <laughs> casual hookup. Yeah, that's a tryst. The genres this movie belongs to, according to Netflix, are thrillers, supernatural thrillers, horror movies, and supernatural horror movies. And the moods that Netflix assigns are chilling, dark, suspenseful, and scary. I'm pretty sure that these categories were used for the other two films that I came on here for as well, right? Oh, probably. Yeah. So, yeah, why... It follows because I, I mean, as is often the case, I had heard about this movie. It had this tremendous reputation uh, back in 2014 when it came out. It was kind of 
the movie that nobody had seen. Yep. So, so why did you why did you pick this one? Well, first and foremost, I just I simply love it. And um, you know, it's interesting that the the three films that I've, that I've done in here now. I'm not like a genre guy. Like I don't um, I don't tend to like favor films that that really cling to like genre trappings. So that can be clearly defined as that's a horror, that's a comedy, or whatever. But um, the, it follows is so is so strong and so fantastic. And you know, it's a horror film, yes. But I mean, horror films are rarely you know in and of themselves like really really strong pieces of cinema and I don't really watch this film as a horror film I don't really think of it that way in fact the only times that I'm a little bit let down by the movie are when it sort of gives in all the way to that idea like the beach scene but we can we'll get yes we'll get we'll get to that but um so yeah I just I love the film and I specifically love the atmosphere um this is a film that you could literally if it had no dialogue you could all you could pretty you could really connect i think to the story like it's so visual uh, again i think all of these three each of these three films upstream color under the skin and, and it follows all work in a really sort of you know beautiful sensual like palette you know and i love the pace like all of these films each three each of the three films is very sort of glacially paced very deliberate and it follows you know is I don't know. I love. I just love the way it unfolds. I love the atmosphere. I love how timeless it feels. Like you can't really tell what what place in history it takes place. Like th- there's all these old TVs, but then there's the one sort of little thing that dispels that. Like the little clamshell e-reader that that the one girl has, and it's like, okay, well, this isn't the '60s. This isn't the '80s, but I mean, it it feels totally timeless because of the way that he did it. Yeah, I that stood out to me that. You know, the the clamshell irritator, which at first I was like, why is she staring so intently at her birth control? <laughs> but I think that that is what the movie is going for. It's let's be timeless. But the the problem that I have with that is mm-hmm. because it has such stark markers of different times. Yes. That instead of feeling timeless by just omitting signs of different yeah. eras, it kind of creates a time that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. which for me was a bit distracting. Mm. That it's set in like the era of the hipster where people have e-readers right. and and cell phones like Annie has at the beginning and she's got kind of a more of a modern car. But everybody, when they go to the movies, mm. they're going to black and white movies and there's somebody playing an organ yeah. all at the same time yeah. where I think I spent too much time in my mind uh-huh. trying to figure that out rather yeah. than being in that atmosphere that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that those elements of displacement um, actually, they serve only to make the, I think the the world of the film, the atmosphere of the film that much more uh, uncomfortable, right? Because because those things that, that you say, you know, took you out of it or distracted you. For me, the, they all contribute to this this feeling that the film's creating of displacement, of otherness, right? Where it's like, it's never quite comfortable because you don't really know where you are. And um, where you really are, at least I, I feel watching this film, is you're in the feeling of, uh, of this experience that they're going through. Like for me, it was so sensual because, and there's all these, you know, roving camera shots, right? Like at least four times in the film, the camera is literally placed on a tripod and slowly you know, spins around the world, right? Stops following characters. And it just, so we're being constantly reminded of, of sort of this space, or as you said, this, this place in time that, that doesn't even exist, right? When the film is its most successful is when I felt drawn into it. And mm-hmm. when I was so enraptured by what was going on and their fear felt like my fear yeah. 
which is generally not the case Mm -hmm. with when I watch putting quotes around it horror movies Mm -hmm. because the the genre has in a lot of cases so much become about spectacle and less about terror yeah that that you're used to watching things happen to victims rather than empathizing with them and in these in in horror films like this the the teenagers are typically just stupid and they're just lining up you know to be killed but in this film I, i thought that it was it was. It also. It, it really. It's a coming of age story. I think. But what they're they're learning is, uh, they're coming to, you know, face to face with their mortality for the first time. You know, when you're that age, you know. That's why. You know, I love the way this film is shot because we're completely in their world. It's not our world. It's something else that maybe we can't connect to the same way we could when we were that age. Where it's just like, that's your world. Nothing else exists. But like the problems between you and your friends or what's happening at school or whatever who's you know who's going to have sex with with who and so in this um in this film uh we're we're in there we're in it with them right and they're totally cut off from everything else and that speaks to the strength of the script and the the casting i Mm -hmm. think because you don't have precious teenagers that Mm -hmm. are saying things that would be clever to yep. for teenagers to say and the people who are cast well there aren't you know people of of different uh like ethnic markers or you know people of of, of size necessarily the all of the actors and actresses that are in it are more conventional looking mm-hmm. while still being right beautiful in a way mm-hmm. that it's not you know it it, it really like it, it's in this kind of middle ground where uh, for instance, when Jay is walking around in, you know, in her underwear, you know, she's this young, attractive woman, but it's not the young, attractive woman that you expect in a horror movie where mm-hmm. she's wearing Victoria's Secret and where she's got this yep. this enormous chest and things like that. Like it felt more grounded. And she's modest. Like she's she feels real. They yeah. feel like real people. Like there's even a shot, you know, where the, the girls are in the washroom, like brushing their teeth. One, you know, one of the girls is clipping her toenails. These are the things that we don't see in, in these movies, right? We don't see any sort of element of deglamorization of like just presenting a young girl doing what she does, right? Like a human being, just like a guy, just like anybody else, right? And um, I just found that like a really honest sort of look at, at that. In, the, in fact, it was the horror elements that for me sometimes just like, cut me out of that right because i you know i did sometimes i didn't want it to be a horror movie like there, there are moments like where i just oh, i wish it didn't have to do that like it's just like there are certain rules if in order to be a horror movie it just had to tick off the list right mm-hmm. but i liked that it was much more metaphorical than anything else the, like i said the only time i was really the spell was broken for me was like like i said the beach scene where we're i don't feel like we should have ever seen that i feel like it should have always just been seen by the one person we should have always seen it through the eyes of the victim yeah that that is the point where it starts where it's no longer following a path and playing with it yeah it's at that point just following the path. So, yeah, yeah succumbing a little bit yeah. but it, it but it comes back i mean for the end i, f- I feel like it, it it reminds me that it, it never really went off course it just had to take care of some business <laughs> now you said that you know, in some cases the horror of the movie is sometimes your least favorite just because the other parts were, were done so well yeah I, I liked how this movie did its horror yep. in that so little of it was spectacle. It's dread. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's scary. It's scary. It's, yeah. it's scary and it's uncomfortable. The and parking garage scene is, is very scary. Absolutely. And I thought that it was really effective how at the very beginning you have the, the, the cold open with Annie yep. where 
you know, you see her dread and it's this resigned dread yes. where she's like, all right, I need to, you know, there's nothing else I can do. We have no idea what she's going through. Yeah. And she's, she's calling her, her father to like make amends for yeah. everything that she's done, but really she's, she's giving up. Yeah. And then the, when we see what finally happens to her, she's this mangled corpse yeah. that's been like twisted apart. And that's the only image you have with no context of what did happen to yeah. her. So that's just this this visceral, horrible, gory seed that's been planted in your head mm-hmm. that I don't think you ever really consciously come back to, but nope. because that's in your head, when there's this looming terror, instead of just seeing it, oh, that's weird that there's an old woman coming towards me, it's, that oh, old woman good is God. No. <laughs> she is so terrifying. See, the, I don't, the, when I say the horror elements, I don't mean the, those moments, like of the old woman, those are uh, crucial and, and chilling moments. I, d- I mean more like when, when it becomes like, sort of like a, s- sort of the more common tropes, right? Okay, sure. Like once it's revealed what, what's happening, and a lot of that horror is deflated, right? Like whenever you find out who the bad guy is, it's always a little bit deflated, right? Yeah. But yeah, the, the way that they do the, the dread is incredible that even though they come back to it so many times it it rare it doesn't often get less scary to to be looking around and to all of a sudden catch like that is the thing Mm -hmm. or seeing it creeping up behind her just whatever whenever it happens and it it reminds you of all of these limitations of your own body like the the concept of binocular vision just means that there's 180 degrees of your surroundings that you are not watching at any given time. So with the nature of the yeah. the it yes. in this movie, you you're never you can't not be vulnerable all yeah. the time. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you said like the 180 degree because in the film, like I said, there are these several moments where the camera just begins a rotation, and one of those moments is in this classroom scene where we first see the old woman, right? And so the teacher, she knows she's she's doing her lesson, which is you know very much again about mortality and uh, you know the one the line from the poem you know i saw the moment of my greatness flicker you know and in in truth i was afraid and so as the camera's panning we're like that's very suspenseful because why is it panning what are we supposed to be looking at what in the frame is important right now and it pans past the window and the old woman's coming but we don't think about her the first time and then it comes back slowly across her we see her again and then onto jay's face then jay looks out the window then we know where we should have been looking and the camera shows us out the window the old woman coming across and again she's so the old woman is all that matters like there are other people there are the people in the classroom we can still hear the teacher's voice the music's starting to come up but we're right there with jay and that's one of my favorite things about the film and uh you know Spielberg employed a similar tactic in E.T. without showing any of the faces of the adults except for two of them. We don't even see the parents in this film. When we do see them, they're kind of out of focus in the background or their dialogue is dialed down. You know, as, as you said, like nothing in the surrounding, nothing in the periphery matters anymore because mm-hmm. now, now we know where the line is. Yeah. And it's incredible that all it takes is a line. Mm-hmm. Well, not all, because obviously there was there was craft that went into making us feel this way, but there is, you know what's coming, you know the speed that it's moving at, but you're still feeling absolute terror. Like this is probably the most sympathetically scared I have felt in a movie in a very long time, mm-hmm. and it makes you so aware of space mm-hmm. and how 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 little of a concept of space you actually have when you're not actively thinking about it. Yep. And that's the, uh, I forget his actual name and his other name. What's the name of the gentleman who passes along the uh, the curse to Jay? 
Hugh, isn't it? Um, Something. I think so. I can't remember his name, but yeah. I, I'm going with Hugh. Let's go with it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so yeah, Hugh says when he's giving her the initial instructions, it's coming for you. Don't ever put yourself in a room with only one exit. Yeah. And, you know, he's learned that from, you know, from trying to evade this thing for as long as he has. But, but yeah, just the, the, the whole idea of space and, you know, the, going into... You know, when, you, when you're running away from something, you go into a familiar room. And mm-hmm. we see her do that. We see her run into her bedroom. But her bedroom has one exit, right? Yep. So it removes safety from you, even though the threat is... It's not clear what's going to happen to you when it gets to you, but its trajectory is clear the mm-hmm. whole time. And it's it's just this kind of countdown clock to well, how much time you have to get away. Yeah, I mean, that sort of like leads in well into like what, I, what this film's really about. <clears throat> and for me, like... The best horror films are the ones that take um, something that we all experience, some aspect of our lives, and twist it into something terrifying. So this film takes something that's already, for most people, terrifying, death, and makes that the thing. Um, And so these kids, that's why it's important that we experience the film from their point of view. And so we're cut off from everything else, from parents... Um, it's just the kids and that's the universe. Like that might as well be the universe. It's like, imagine, you know, being the first human beings, like being, you know, cave people for them. Like the world is the forest they live in. There's no other world. There's not, there's no other planets. There's no other rest of this planet. And so it's like that for these kids. But then when, you know, Jay, you know, Jay has sex with, as we're going with Hugh and this thing is passed on to her, what it really is, it's, it's really this awareness that she's going to die. And that's why I think it's important that they iterate that it's coming slowly and steadily. Um, and there is no escape ultimately, right? All you can do is pass it on or whatever in the case of this film. But for me, the film's really about that loss of innocence that, you know, you experience that moment where you realize 100% with total certainty that you're going to die. And this comes into play throughout the film. Like the fact that, you know, the one girl, and I can't remember her name is reading the idiot. And she quotes it again at the end and talking about that idea of like ceasing to be a person and, and knowing, you know, knowing that it's inevitable. Like that's, that's the hardest part. That's the scariest part. Yeah. And early on, she, uh, the, the line from the idiot is about how, you know, if you're facing certain destruction, that yes. the best thing to do is to just sit down and accept it. Yes. And that's what all this is about. Yes. is about evading that yeah. and fighting against it which is the opposite of what we see Annie do. Annie does resign herself to it and has something pretty horrible happen to her. Well, we all resign ourselves to it eventually, right? She just chose, she chose knowing that it's coming to just like not want to fear it anymore and be done. But, uh, but yeah, that idea that there is really no escape from this thing, right? With the way that they pass it on, the fact that passing it on isn't a permanent solution. Passing it on just means that you're, you're paying it forward and you hope that the next person does. Yeah. But at no point do we see somebody successfully pass it along and not have it come back to them. Yeah. There's always that threat that even if you think you're safe, if the next person did something wrong, then you have, you have no idea when it could be next coming around the corner. I really prefer your reading because I kind of didn't have one (laughs) yet. A A lot of what I had read about it was people saying things that I found obnoxious, like, uh, well, obviously, this is a big metaphor about the anxiety of teenage sex. And I was like, right. I feel like that isn't what this is about. No. Like you said, it's kind of the the framework. It's to a get catalyst. There. It's a catalyst. Yeah. And I felt like there there were some things that did get said about sex, but that wasn't what 
the movie was really trying to tell us about yeah. what what's the greatest like predicament of of the human you know of the human existence right like this film's very existential in, in a sort of you know seemingly simple simple way where it's like we have an awareness that we're going to die and that's like it's both our gift and our curse it's a gift and then it gives our lives meaning like okay i have to do something while i'm here because it's going to end but at the same time having that awareness and it's not just about death it's about the own entropy of your body the gradual breakdown and decay the changes that happen as you get older and it's you know every day that you live is another day that you're not going to live right and so these kids you know i don't know what age that i was at where i just suddenly things change the gears shift but in this film we see it happen for these kids and it could be it's sex in this case but it really it could be anything right but sex is a, is a it makes sense to use that right because that's really the first time you leave behind the simplicity of childhood right i think probably no matter how old you are when you first have sex right some people have it really young some people don't but it still changes things right your own body chemistry changes when you have that experience with another person because it's sort of the biological imperative right it's what you're here to do so when you do it for the first time i feel like you activate something that you can never turn off mm-hmm. and so in this case that's the you know that's the catalyst but what it really is is it turns on the awareness they're going to die and they can never shake it yeah in response to you, you mentioning the change when that happens, when when you turn that corner, Jay and Paul kind of speak to that. Where after, towards the end, when when Paul agrees to have sex with Jay to take on the curse, uh, he, they ask each other, "Do you feel any different?" And they say no, mm-hmm. because and in that moment, you know, it's not like there is this this sharp turn that happens, yeah. right? It's looking back on it, you know, if we're using sex as the as the impetus for adulthood sure. you know, at the time it's a sensory experience that you know it hey that happened and you're not a different person on the other side of it mm-hmm. but it, it can set you onto a path of self-awareness and, and yeah. putting you into a whole different stage of your life that looking back on it yeah it it was really transitory for you but you know it takes a while to get to a point that you can look back to have that perspective kids are fearless because they don't have that awareness yet once you have the awareness, that's when you can start to be afraid of things that you weren't afraid of before even, right? And so in this film, like, everything becomes a threat. Everything becomes scary because of their awareness, right? And it doesn't mean that that's what it's like in real life. Like, you know, suddenly, are you scared every day because of that awareness, right? No. But this is like a hyper, a hyper realization of that. And it's because it's also the age that they're at, right? Where everything is now, it's like the world's closing in on them, right? It follows. It follows, man. It follows. I mean, when I left the theater, when I first saw it, like, I, I was happy that it came to London. I don't know, but I mean, I was hoping it, it, came, it would come to the Highland, but it came to Silver City. And so I, I honestly, as much as I love the Highland, feel like it's, it's, uh, it's even more important to see a film like that at a big multiplex if it comes, you know, and I think I've said this, you know, before. So anyway, I, when I went and saw it, when I left the theater that night, like it was literally, I was walking across the parking lot, you know, alone after, after you know, we all parted ways. And I turned around and everyone was gone. And then when I got to my car, I turned around again and there was somebody coming across the parking lot towards me. Somebody no, knew, no, no. I'm not joking. Somebody knew. And uh, it, it just, it didn't scare me. I think it just gave me a little bit of like a, a displacement where I, you know, it's like, am I still, have I left the theater kind of thing? <laughs> like, is this still the movie? Like, just because when you come out of a film, especially late at night and you're just sort of still in the space of that film, 
so everything else is colored by that. It's like when you first yeah. wake up, right? And it's like you're still kind of still dreaming. Something that, that really grabbed me in this movie is, and I think that this was really having fun with, or not fun because it wasn't fun, but really playing with some of the some of the elements that you're used to in a horror movie, mm. uh, specifically with the male characters, like Greg, who's the uh, you know, the bad boy. And even though we've said that the characters are, are quite realistic and things like that, like Greg is the exception because mm. Greg comes in as the the neighbor from a broken home with long hair. Like yep. he's he's John Bender, right? And he's fearless in a movie that's all about fear. So he has to go. But he's fearless because he's clueless. Like yeah. he's, yeah. Yep. He's not awakened yet, perhaps. Exactly. Even he's had sex, clearly, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. He's but not a kid either. He's a bit older than them. Yeah, there's there's no there's no depth to him, though. No. Like, he's had sex because he's been told that he should have sex yeah. or because of some something that's happened in his life before. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting to play with that that character, like, that whole idea to have him come in and go through the steps of, like, oh, the girl really likes the bad boy instead <laughs> of me and, and that whole thing. And, you know, we see him be kind you know Mm -hmm. he's always flirting with anybody and he's always leering at everybody but when he finally has sex with jay you think that he's doing it out of goodwill Mm -hmm. he's trying to help her out because he's somebody who can have sex with someone else and pass it along and the next scene you see after he's having sex with jay is him kind of with his hand on the lap of another girl in the cafeteria so you think oh yeah like go keep this keep this moving forward keep the education going everybody just kind of takes turns and we'll pass this thing around yeah but then it turns out that he's just a skis he never believed in this at all the whole time and all he's done is just kind of move things forward accidentally and that scene that they where they have sex in the hospital is painful too because you know she's doing it just for a specific purpose because he's willing to right but when she you know she turns to the side right and it's just sort of she escapes from that moment in her mind right because it doesn't mean anything to her she's not doing it because she cares about this guy she's doing it because he said he'll do it for her right she hasn't forced him into that position so it's not like you know she's directly putting him into danger but she knows that nothing good is going to come of this and he's just hey he's just happy to be doing what he's doing and he's not really thinking that far ahead yeah the women are the soothsayers in this story, as they are, you know, in, in my life personally as well. But in the, in this story, like the girls, you know, they're reading, they're thinking, right? And you know, the the you know Jay's friend uh, is Paul, right? Paul. Yeah, Paul. You know, he's just sort of there because he really like cares about Jay, and you know, but the girls are really running the show, right? And um, and again, I, I found it fascinating that you know that she's reading the idiot, you know, on this little clamshell thing too, right? And I love when he asks her, like, when she says, what are you, what are you reading? The Idiot. Um, and she goes, it's about Paul. And this is before we meet Paul. And then the camera pans across. And then, you know, and then Jay says, hi, Paul. <laughs> Paul, for me, was quite possibly the most interesting character because mm-hmm. he was actually a bit of a source of horror for me. Yeah. And this may be partially in reaction to the conversation that, that Caroline and I had about Ex Machina. But it, it's made me very skeptical of, you know, the the good guy. Oh, yeah. Um, because he's coming along and he, he clearly has, at the very least, a crush on Jay. Yeah. And everything that he does is in hopes that she's going to kind of feed something back to him. Mm-hmm. Like the way that he would describe it is that he's being friend zoned. The way that she would describe yeah. it is that she has a friend. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And I had this anxiety from pretty early on, like once she got the curse. And he seemed like he was like, oh, well, the valiant thing 
for me to do would be to have sex with her. Yes. So so coming from this place that is entirely self-motivated, yep. but being able to rationalize it in his head that it would be the right thing to do, yep. I honestly would not have been surprised if there was a scene in there where Jay woke up and Paul was like trying to have sex with her to be like, no, I rescued you. I would have been, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. I would have been surprised actually. I do think that, you know, yes, he had the uncontrollable urges of a man, you know, who's going through puberty and, and you know, one of these things. But I, I, I don't think that he would have done that. I personally don't. Um, I hope he wouldn't have anyway. He doesn't. Well, and that was the, <laughs> that was the anxiety that I had yeah, is that, yeah. I could understand a world in which he would be able to yes. rationalize that to himself, me that too. he's doing the right thing. Yep. And that was, that left me very uneasy. And that's the one part where for me, the movie was actually about sex. Yeah. Because for some characters like Greg yeah. and Paul, this is all about sex. And then yeah. for other characters, it's about death and yeah. And life, and you know, and how many you know works of literature, and you know how many works of art are sex and death, you know, the bed buddies, right? Are they like they're inseparable, right? I mean, um, the orgasms even referred to as like the little death, right? Mm. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you on that, like on that fear, the the optimist in me is just like I I never thought like that his I never thought that his character would do that. I mean, he he just seemed he was very passive. I I believe that he he could possibly convince himself that he was doing the right thing, but I, I don't feel that he would. But maybe that says more about me mm-hmm. than the movie itself. It's also interesting that the the thinking women, as you said, kind of put Paul into the place of you're the one with the gun because yep. we just assume that yep. that. Okay, if you're going to be along for this ride and all you're going to do is like... The guys are just along for the ride in this movie. Yeah, if you're just going to like mope and pine after me and yeah. sit there wearing a denim jacket on the yeah. beach because you're uncomfortable in your own body, yeah. then at the very least, do the man thing. Yeah. And yeah, it's not done in a way of respect. It's just like at least protect us. Yeah. Like that's, be good for something. That beach scene started out really strong for me. Like, you know, it's, they're just hanging out at the beach. They're taking refuge from from what happened and so we can't possibly relax even though they're relaxing they're trying to take a moment they're still kids they're clearly clearly not totally ruined by this experience yet but then uh so we see you know this girl coming from behind and you know on first glance that's that's just i I want to remember her name because the girl who's who's reading the books because she's she's so cool but anyway so she's walking along the beach and and we think it's her and then we see um it's Yara. Yara. I love it. And so, and then we see her, you know, wading out into the water. And we realized that that wasn't Yara that we were looking at walking across the beach. And so it's ter- It's creepy. It's, it's creepier and creepier. And she starts pulling Jay's hair. And it's even creepy still when we, see, when we don't see her. We just see the hair coming up. I kind of wish we hadn't seen any more of that. I w- like the scene, I feel like it could have still taken place, but you know, when Paul gets flung back and stuff like that, that's, w- that's where I, I think the veil came down. Like, and that's where, when the movie kind of stopped being scary and it was just like, okay, now we got to go through these aspects. It still got scary again, but it, it was never scary the way it was sort of in the first two thirds. No, I, I definitely agree that it, it, it almost played its hand too early. But it, yeah, but it also made it, a real physical thing. Yeah. And I kind of wish that it never had become that because the film was so effectively a metaphor <clears throat> for the, for dying, for death, for, for becoming aware of your mortality that when it made it a physical thing, it, it didn't deflate those earlier scenes, but it, it wasn't as powerful in the moment when it became a physical thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's a phys- physical thing if it can kill you. 
Yeah. But I mean, just seeing it kind of broke the illusion a bit. Yeah. And like you always knew that it was a physical thing yeah. based on how people were reacting to it yeah. and preparing for it. Like the way that that house was rigged. If it could break your leg in half, like in the first scene of the film, like it's, yeah. it's pretty real. Right. But yeah, it, it did. It dispelled something. It yep. demystified something in, in that beach scene where there was just, whether it was just too much going yeah. on or. But then we had that great scene where, uh, you know, that in a lesser horror film, the rest of the film from that point would have just been trying to get away from the killer. But we still get to see some great moments with the kids, like when they make their way back to the school the old school and uh they're talking about like you know when they were kids trying to you know go down the eight mile road and just talking about like the the rules and restrictions that their parents would give for them and that was like the first time in the film that it really told you where it's taking place right in the uh, the remnants of detroit right mm-hmm. so it's clearly it, it feels contemporary too because if it were in the 80s like it wouldn't be quite just the remnants of Detroit that it is now, right? Mm. But we see that it's a ghost town, like a lot of the aspects, like these empty houses going by as they're driving through the streets. Well, and, and they play with it a little bit too, talking about the the divide between the suburbs yes. and the city. And uh, I talked about this a little bit before too with, with Deanne when we were talking about adventures and babysitting, yep. that when all you know is the suburbs the city seems like the scariest thing in the world because yeah. all you know about it is by reputation. You know, it's the city. It's not. Nobody the- leaves this place without singing the blues. That could be the mantra for this film too, right? Another thing that I appreciated with the movie was how how kind of gracefully it played with its humor. Yeah. That there, there are jokes, just straight up jokes mm-hmm. in this movie, but never to the point of being like, and now we're trying to dispel the tension. It right. was more that... Because there's so much tension, we can laugh. It felt organic. It felt organic. Like, you know, when when she and Paul are sitting on the couch just talking about the first time they kissed, right? And she makes a joke that, you know, he kissed his sister, you know, and and stuff like that. Um, Or the uh, the one that stands out for me is when they're sitting around and they've they've hunted down the guy who passed on the curse to Jay. And he starts like freaking out because he sees (laughs) the the girl with the soccer ball walking along. Do you guys all see see her? Do you see her? Yeah. Yep. No, it's it's great. It's also, you know allowing the audience to like the characters are aware that this is crazy too like this is like a this is just an insane situation well yeah they do they do the horror movie thing where like well we can't tell our parents because (laughs) they just wouldn't understand yeah 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 exactly (laughs) well parents just will never understand right not when you're a kid right because nobody could possibly understand you and all of your majesty and mystery Right. right um we can't not talk about the incredible soundtrack the score definitely um, so yeah, the score, I mean, because the atmosphere of this film is so thick and so heavy and the score, which one thing I, I think one of the strongest points of the film is that it's making us aware of the the period where these horror films were kind of really ubiquitous and also much better than they are now, <laughs> like sort of late seventies, early eighties. Right. And so the film reminds us of those eras without ever completely succumbing to them. So the music, um, for me with this sort of really ethereal, um, synth you know like I love like when Jay's sort of just like in the pool and you know the camera's slowly coming down through the leaves and with this music it's just sort of guiding us in um, the whole film it gives the film this really dreamy quality and it's interesting because the guy who scored the film who goes by disaster piece which I hope he changes as time goes on because I don't know <laughs> that name might hold him back a little bit but anyway <laughs> but it is unique but he, he this is the first film he scored like he was he scored video games and the director of the film you know played some of these games and really noticed the music I guess and I can't remember which game in particular Fest. But he, 
What's that? It was Fez. Okay. And he contacted, you've done your homework. So he contacted him and yeah, and then asked him to score. Would you like, would you be interested in scoring a film? And well, the rest is history, right? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how it kind of calls back to the the golden age of teen horror. And there's no, there's no way to dance around the fact that it sounds, it's very evocative of like a John Carpenter score. Totally. You know, with the, the it's got some David Lynch's, you know, some Angelo Badalamante elements too. Just some of the synth. Well, you are speaking a language that is much better informed than I am at this <laughs> point. But I just, I, I was patted myself on the back for the John Carpenter. Thing. Totally. <laughs> I'm not taking that away from you. <laughs> but it, it, it did, like it, it, it did that that same thing that we've been talking about already. Where it, it I, at no point did the music stop being effective, but when the movie is at its most effective, is it's. it's it's showing you these things that are familiar-ish in a horror movie setting, yeah. but doing something different, something updated, something, something a bit different with it, without going for shock value. Yeah, like it's not, it's not new for the sake of new. We're not right. turning the genre on its head. We're just being more, getting back to sincerity with yep. it, getting back to dread, getting back to fear. And it's very visceral. Like there's some sounds in the music that really, you know, stand the hairs on your neck straight up, right? Especially in the parking garage scene. At the beginning, but yeah, the the music you know really goes from like that soft romantic dreamy quality, and then when it you know gets into the scarier, it, I mean, it it really gets to you. Well, like I said, I mean, for me, the film is is such a beautiful exercise in um in atmosphere, right? The cinematography is incredible in the film. Um, again, I love I love how uh, how it takes its time. You know, and if that, a lot of people, you know, if you, I, I made the mistake of, you know, reading a couple of forums, whatever, people saying like it, there are, it ranges from like absolute masterpiece to what, you know, WTF, like what, it's so slow, it's boring, you know, and um, I don't know, I don't know what movie those people saw. <laughs> I really don't. But yeah, I love the slow pace of it. I hate being rushed. I think I may have mentioned this before, the idea of the tyranny of narrative of just, pushed through things like I feel a lot of times when I'm watching like you know especially like modern Hollywood movies like the bigger ones right especially superhero movies right where everything's beat driven right we've got a you know every moment is just there to move us to the next moment and it's yeah that's the case of all stories but it doesn't have to be obvious you don't have to hit us over the head with it that we're just moving you know two characters are about to kiss and cut you know beat beat um and that's just really tedious to me it's the boring way to make a movie. Unless you do it really well. It can be done really well. Like the Star Wars movies are purely are beat-driven narratives. They move incredibly fast, but they're, they're done really well. It's, it's economically done. And uh, so when it's done really well, it can be really satisfying. Yeah. But for me, for the most part, like I seek out, often seek out purposely like slower films. Like after I went and saw The Force Awakens a few times in theaters as much as I enjoyed it, I just like, I needed the, a night, I came home and I just like, okay, I have to watch Lost in Translation, which it doesn't have a plot. It's just, it's slow, it's atmospheric and it's just experiential, right? Yeah, you don't mind economy of narrative. You don't like the narrative of economy. Well, I think that the reason that this film lingers um, is because of the very nature of what it's about and how it's achieved, right? It's going to linger for these characters. And I think that when you when the credits roll, if the movie has hit you the way that I believe they wanted to hit you, and certainly the way that it hit me, is that that person down the sidewalk is always going to be there, like one way or another, right? Walking, just mm-hmm. walking. And um, Yeah, we didn't really talk about the, the, the ambiguous ending spoiler alert okay let's do it yeah it's interesting to see what happens because for one thing like paul has come along and he's decided he's going to be the big Mm -hmm. hero and he offers to have sex with jay he 
takes on the the curse which was was kind of tough for me to wrap my head around like why would you do that yeah why like i get i get why you did it but why would you do the biological imperative is stronger than the fear of death that's why it's just like knowing what could happen he's still willing to take the pleasure of the moment or you know i want to hope that part of it's just like he wants to take this onus off of jay but he's actually doubling the onus on jay because he's put the target on himself which means that if he fails she's going to lose him then it's going to come for her right and then she's going to pass it on again yeah so i think it's it's first and foremost that that biological imperative so then his solution to the problem seems to be to seek out <laughs> some pretty haggard looking sex workers that scene look look i thought like are we still in detroit are we like in like old 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 like eastern europe right now yeah like, i thought he went to like latvia i know right <laughs> he took a trip it's Although not really would be a better way to do it. This is not the film that the Detroit Tourist Bureau is going to be <laughs> is going to be showing people. But um, I loved I love the ending, and I know that I'm I'm sure a lot of people hate the ending. Like I'm sure I can imagine right now the visual image of someone just arms going up like when the credits hit. I love that it's a smash cut too. I love they're just quietly walking. We hear every sound. We the guy there's a guy is he like using a leaf blower or he's raking leaves. Um, they're walking along the sidewalk hand in hand. We hear their footsteps. We hear birds. We just hear like the general ambience of the city. And then uh, cut behind them and we see a person walking. And then we cut back to behind them again. The camera's just slowly, ever so subtly moving closer into them. Smash credits. Love it. It's the perfect ending. And any of those little missteps along the way, like, you know, the beach confrontation and stuff like that for me, because the film, you know, comes back to where it all began, it comes back to what the whole point was. I feel like those scenes are just there to just complete an arc. It's just like, we'll just do this, but it's not really what the movie's about. And that those scenes didn't derail the movie. The the ending didn't resonate with me. It, like, it didn't make me angry. Yep. But it was kind of, it felt, it was like, we ran out of story to tell, so we stopped <laughs> telling it. It's, mm. how it. it's how it read to me in the first place. But looking at it now through the lens of what you've introduced, yeah. the idea of like it's about teenagers discovering death or yeah. people discovering their own mortality. Like, I mean, how I see it now is you've got Jay and Paul who both have been kind of, you know, they've been dancing around the idea of being into each other. But once they, the circumstances that have led to them eventually having sex have not been terribly romantic. And but they've been they've been joined together by this circumstance so they yep. feel like they share something but when they're walking hand in hand they're not happy no. to be there they're sharing the fear of death now they're sharing the fear of death exactly and that's i mean at the most cynical that's what people do that they get scared of death yeah. so they pair off with each other or they share loneliness right it's like i'd rather be alone with someone else than be alone alone right yeah and it's this depressing look at the human behavior of yep. pairing off that these two people who aren't necessarily aren't terribly happy with each other yep. and they wouldn't have been together if it weren't for these circumstances they wouldn't have he would have chosen her but you know he was just like a really close friend to her right yeah and for for him i mean it could it i i like the idea that he when he finally got what he thought he'd been wanting all along that really it, it was the the feeling of being spurned yeah that he was so into because that was his narrative yep. right so then eventually he got there and he didn't know how to act because 
he couldn't play that role anymore because she had accepted him and she had slept with him. Nobody wants to get what they want. They just want to want what they want. Yeah. They want to be able to keep wanting it. Mm-hmm. So Don't then, take away my wants. So then at the end, when they're when they're walking along and when there's that kind of like, you know, that, that hint that, you know, maybe it is still after them. Yeah. You don't even feel the dread anymore. It's just kind of, it's inevitable. It's resignation and you're not, almost. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's fairly well bookended with Annie at the beginning, except Annie was still upset yeah. <laughs> while being resigned. These guys are just kind of traipsing through life, waiting for death yeah. to catch up to them. I think you get the idea with Annie that she'd kind of been on the run for a little while from this yeah. thing. And it was just sort of like, can't take it anymore. Yeah, she's exhausted. What about the kitchen scene? Did you think that was one of the scariest points? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh definitely. God. Good Lord. And that was one of those ones where... When the tall guy comes in through the bedroom door, that's one of the most, like, follow to your seat moments for me in the movie when I first saw it. Yeah, that was that was a lot. <laughs> because, that, I mean, that was dramatic irony, right? Where, like, you know what's going on, and she's still figuring it out, but yeah. everybody else is acting like there's, you know, there's nothing, no big deal. There's nothing going on. Those kind of scenes must be really interesting to shoot, right? And the actors have to completely pretend that this person isn't here. When, when she comes in through the door and she's like, it's just me. <laughs> that huge guy. And then, oh, God. Oh. It's really well edited. It's really, like I said, I mean, it's even those those moments that for me kind of break it a little bit. They don't, they can't fully break it because it's so solid. I just, it's so close to perfect. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to, I mean, talking about the ending. That seems <laughs> like a good place to start <laughs> wrapping it up. As always, I want to invite you to tell me your, your rating and your MVP for this movie. So, Rating is the the actual star rating that your Netflix profile has this uh, has this rated as. Uh, one star means you hated it. Mm-hmm. Two stars didn't like it. Three stars liked it. Four stars really liked it. And five stars means you loved it mm-hmm. as well. MVP. So uh, cast or crew or whoever you felt really uh, kind of gave this that extra push. Yep. Um, I think for me, I give it. I think it's a four star film overall for me i give it five stars though because i do love it and i i don't um i can't list you too many horror films that i think are great films um i think you know each of the three films that i've done so far have been independent you know films right and i just i don't know this the filmmakers here really did their homework and they clearly really love the source material and i think they did something new and unique with it i don't know in some ways it's also it's like a, a film lesson in 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 uh, pacing and cinematography and atmosphere um so yeah i mean i love the film so i i, I it's got five stars on my profile right on. how mm-hmm. about mvp micah monroe i mean she's the glue right of the whole film i mean she's in basically every almost every shot of the film and uh yeah i mean she has she seems to be that kind of girl who's like sought after at school, but she doesn't, she hasn't become jaded by it. Like she's, she's just a kid. Right. And she's just trying to get through this with her friends. And, um, I just love that these kids are not really judgmental. They're all really likable and, and they all feel very real. Mm -hmm. And she's somebody that you can really care about and empathize. And her performance is fantastic. I think, uh, for me, I'm putting it in as four stars. It was different than anything I'd I'd seen before. Mm-hmm. It was scarier than anything that I'd that I, that I'd felt in a long time. Especially the fact that it wasn't just like one scene. Yeah. That got me in. It was three or four. Well, it didn't base itself around jump scares. It didn't rely yeah. on those things. Yeah. So I mean, you said the the word atmosphere, and that's that's really the perfect way to describe it. It was you're just kind of swimming in terror for a while for mm-hmm. these scenes, and 
is incredibly effective, really effective. Mm-hmm. And it may be that on a, maybe a second watching, I'll, I'll love it even more kind of after. It's grown for me. Seeing it through a different lens that mm-hmm. you've introduced to me. But but for now, four-star movie. Uh, and for my MVP, this is largely personal, but Paul, or sorry, Keir Gilchrist, who played Paul, mm-hmm. um, I thought that he did a great job of embodying the, the nice guy that yep. is teetering on going too far because <laughs> at the very least he he's he's making his intentions clear that describes me and as a human being <laughs> <laughs> the nice guy teetering on going too far no continue uh, on you know i've been there right yeah. you know the guy who you know to everybody else it's clear that like yes you're into her but for him he's like well nobody's like she hasn't said anything so yeah. maybe she doesn't know so i need to like push a little further a little further looking back on the performance through the lens that through the lens that you've introduced, you know, him getting exactly what he wanted, still being disappointed and yep. kind of holding hands with her, yeah. getting exactly what he thought he wanted and kind of moping the way through his, the rest of his life. Well, yeah, it, it kind of, you know, it brings up another point. Like, it's not about getting what you want. It's about getting what you want the way you want it. And it's not the way he wanted it. It's not the way he pictured it. And of course, it never is, right? And I think that the film's as much about like that first sex experience as anything, right? If it's if we're going to talk about it being about sex, then it's about that first experience of you've built it up so much in your head. It's not quite what you built it up to be. It's different, especially that first time. But then there's a whole other bunch of stuff that you've got to deal with now that was literally 20 minutes ago or however long the act itself took that was not on your radar. That was not a problem that you had to deal with. It wasn't a complication that was in your life. And as soon as you've had it even once, it's a complication that's always going to be in your life. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, no, I think that's that's great. That's a that's a fantastic way to wrap it up. Um, thank you for, for coming on and doing this again and for, for showing me the movie and giving people a lot of, for giving people a reason to watch this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. People seem to be coming out of the woodwork on my Facebook telling me like, how have you not seen this movie before? Excellent. And, um, so obviously there are people who are interested and mm-hmm. hopefully they'll, they'll like the conversation and the, the different takes that we had on this. Um, yeah. Thank you again for coming on and doing this and, and always supporting the project. Uh, what do you have coming up? Uh, the, the, the teaser for glass just came out, which, uh, is already posted yes. uh, from last week's, yep. uh, in last week's episode notes. But what, I mean, do you want to tell us about what you're working on everything that's happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the teaser for Glass was the first, as Edward mentioned on uh, on his podcast, was the first time that, as he, uh, I'll quote him here, that Jason has allowed uh, the world to see any moving images from this film. And so uh, he's kind of had some laughs about that, like about how secretive um, I've been about the thing. But people will understand in the end, and he appreciates it too. But um, so Edward and I are going to be, you know, editing, starting to edit the film together in May. We're going to be editing, uh, editing a couple of the bigger, chunks together just because uh he's he's shot you know so much of it and he, we've shot so much footage you know in one 14 hour day we shot 200 minutes of footage for one scene in a film that's going to be about 35 to 40 minutes so that's that was for one scene so, so it's going to be an interesting edit but um so yeah that's that's sort of the main thing that's going on right now and working with some incredible people to uh to show london something that i'm quite certain 
is unlike anything they've seen before. Where can people follow the project? Where's the best place? Um, well, you can go on my website if you directly on liminalarts.com, liminal-arts. The teaser's up there. There will be more stuff coming soon. Um, you can go to my Liminal Arts Facebook page, my Vimeo page. The teaser's up there. Um, my Vimeo page has all of the stuff that I've currently put up line on it. All right. Well, I, I've been following that project with, with much anticipation. I'm uh, looking forward to... Yes, I've appreciated your, your posts about it. And such. I'm looking forward to whatever the first opportunity is for me to see any any part of it. So uh, I'll be sure to keep people informed on this end. And, uh, and again, thank you for coming on and doing this. So that's everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. If you like what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content like show notes, articles, and reviews. You can find us on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore, and we're on Tumblr and SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. That's the place where I keep a running diary of all the movies that I've been watching, as well as a list of all the upcoming episodes and all the upcoming movies that we're going to be covering on this show. If you'd like to support Netflix, there are a few ways that you can do so. One way is by heading over to iTunes or whichever podcast platform you prefer and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. And while you're there, if you drop a rating and a review, it just helps get more people's eyes on the content and ears on the show. You can also contribute directly to what we're doing here by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards like shoutouts on the podcast or customized content, or if you'd just like to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support at Patreon. You can either find us right on the Patreon website, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, or if you go to our website, hit support in the banner at the top. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much, very sincerely, for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog, because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs>